Now we're ready to go. All right. Guys, let's talk about, we're going to talk about this week's Parsha a little bit. And perhaps a theme in the Parsha. There's actually two Parshas this week, so it's pretty chock full of stuff. And we also want to tie it into the unique time period that we're in right now on the Jewish calendar. We are in the three weeks, um, which means that we're in a time of national mourning. And the mourning is about to intensify on, uh, on Shabbos. Shabbos, uh, we don't mourn on Shabbos, but Shabbos begins the nine days of intense mourning leading up to Tisha B'Av, which was uh, a week from Sunday. So Shabbos is Rosh Chodesh Av, the month of Av. And that is a month of, of mourning for the first half. Second half becomes a month of uh, joy. So it's it's unique time. And something that is, uh, something I was just thinking about today is, why is the month of Av called Av? It's a bad month. The month when the temple was destroyed. Not once, but twice. Tisha B'Av is a day of national mourning for the Jewish people for all of history. Going back to the... Um, to all the way back. Way back to the day that the, um, the spies came back from spying out the land of Israel and they spoke badly about the land of Israel. Um, it is the day of the first destruction, the first temple and the second temple, the day of the Bar Kokhba revolt massacres, uh, the day of the Spanish Inquisition began, right? 14, 1400 and when? 92, the day that Columbus was supposed to sail the ocean blue. Columbus was supposed to sail on Tisha B'Av, but he pushed his flight, his trip off one day, some, leading some to propose that Columbus might have been a secret Jew. And uh, there's, other, um, there's other sources to confirm that, that do support that thesis. Uh, the Warsaw Ghetto was liquidated on Tisha B'Av. World War I broke out on Tisha B'Av. The final solution against the Jews in Germany was proposed on Tisha B'Av. So Tisha B'Av is a very heavy day for Jewish people. It's a day that's set aside for national suffering. So why do we call this month Av, which means Father? Why in the world would we call it Father? Okay, so that's a question I'd like to ponder. Um, additionally, the Magad of Mezrich, the successor to the Baal Shem Tov, successor to the second generation of the Hasidic movement, says that this time, the three weeks, is the best time to connect to God. Now you would think, what do you mean? It's a time of mourning. It's a time of tragedy. How do we connect to God during tragedy? So he gives a metaphor. The metaphor he gives is that the king is in exile right now. The king is running away from his palace, which is being burned and destroyed. The king is traveling on the road incognito, escaping. And now anyone who recognizes the king can go right up to him and talk to him face to face. He doesn't have his entourage. He doesn't have his army surrounding him. You don't have to wait online. 
to get into his throne room. He's literally out here amongst us. So there's an idea that Hashem is in Gullis. Hashem is in exile. The Shekhinah, the divine presence, is in exile, which means that it's God's presence is hidden all around us, and we have to seek it out. And now is the best time to connect to the Shekhinah, to the, the divine presence, which is hidden all around us in the world. So maybe we'll talk a little bit how to do that. So let's uh, let's take a look at some of the themes in the parsha quickly, and then I'll I'll try to open it up as much as I can. And I haven't looked at these notes since last year, so bear with me. Okay, so the first of the two parshas this week is called Matos, and I'm just gonna run through and say some of the different things. It starts off talking about personal vows. If a person wants to be stringent on themselves in an area of purity or spirituality, they can make a vow. And now we don't really do this nowadays so much, but back in the day, if you wanted to go on a diet, so it's really hard not to eat cake. But if you make a vow, that cake now becomes for you forbidden. Vow not to eat cake. So like there's a, there's a famous story told about kids Jewish kids in the supermarket. So your kid sees some candy and starts crying, I want that candy, I want that candy. And kids can make quite a scene. One time my sister, when she was very little, was screaming for ice cream on the street. And my father said no. And she started screaming like crazy. And the police came over and stopped my father. And they like took down his information and they're like, if we hear any story, any issues with any kidnappings or anything, we're coming after you. And um, then my father's like, all right, I'll get your ice cream. He got her ice cream. She's like, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> so you can never give in, never give in. Cause that's the beginning of the end. When you give in to your kids quetching or your spouse's quetching, well, no, your spouse, you should give in to, but your kids quetching, they're just going to want more and more. And the same thing with us, right? When you give in to your desires for things that aren't good for you, you're going to just want more and more. So when you're in the supermarket and the kid says, I want that candy, and the kid starts screaming, no, you can't have any candy today. I want candy. No. Why is the kid screaming so much? What does the kid know is going to happen if they scream a lot? gonna eventually give in if i never gave in would the kids scream no the kid would know it doesn't work the reason kids scream is because they know it's they're gonna get what they want they're either gonna get attention in the form of the parents getting upset which is also exciting for a kid or they're gonna get the candy so i remember one time when i first got married the rabbi said if you uh, i said you know sometimes my kids cry so much my wife can't handle it she just gives in he said you're free to do that, but you're going to have a terrible life. <laughs> so so uh, eventually we learned after our first kid, you know, and not too late. We corrected all the mistakes that we made. But um, so the kid keeps screaming. I want the. He is very well behaved, but it took years because we did spoil him the first few years. We did not know how to say no. And we felt so guilty every time we said no. Oh, no, we're going to traumatize our kid for saying no to him. And the answer is when you don't say no to him, you traumatize your kid. Much worse. So um, 
So you say to the kid, no, you can't have candy, you can't have candy. And the kid keeps screaming, screaming louder because they know they're going to get it. And then you turn to the kid and you say, it's not kosher. Instantly, the kid stops screaming. How could it be? Why was it okay to scream a second ago? And the answer is, is because they know they can get away with it. But as soon as you say it's not kosher, they know that's a red line you can't cross. So it should be like that with all of your rules. But it's much easier to be like that with God's rules. Okay, so now. That's number one. We have a ways to go. All right. That was the first theme in the Parsha. Then we have a war with the Midianites who who really uh, messed us over in last week's Parsha. And um, we take certain spoils from that war, certain vessels, and we learn from this the laws of koshering utensils. We learn that utensils, metal utensils, have to go in a mikvah. That's converting the utensils to become Jewish, if you didn't know that. And they have to go in boiling water to make it kosher. And ceramic vessels, there's nothing you could do about it. And so we learn the laws of kosher from these spoils of war from the Midianites. And I'm pointing that out because it's going to really tie into our theme, okay? Then we have the request of Reuven, God and half of the tribe of Manasseh to not enter into the land of Israel. They say, you know what? We really like this land over here that we just can't conquered on the other side of the Jordan River. We'd rather stay over here. This land is great. It's got like, you know, f- there's room for our flocks and we'll, there's some cities that we just conquered. So let's stay over here. Moshe starts to freak out because this sounds very reminiscent of something that happened a few weeks ago in the Parsha. In fact, the reason for Tisha B'Av is because we cried that we didn't want to go into the land of Israel. So Moshe starts to say, wait a minute, what's going on? Are these guys doing this again? Another rebellion? And they said to him, no, Moshe, we're going to go and help you conquer the land of Israel. We're only going to return and dwell in this land once everyone else is comfortable in the land of Israel. So he says, okay. He sees that their their priorities were right. They weren't trying to get out of their of the obligation of settling the land of Israel and all the obligations and the hardships that come with living in the real world. They just wanted to live on that side. So again, pay close attention. Everything we've talked about so far has the same theme in common. I want you guys to think about it. Okay? Start thinking. Run, let those gears start start turning in your heads. Then we go to second Parsha of this week's double Parsha, which is Ma-Sai. And Ma-Sai talks about the 42 journeys of the Jewish people. And it lists all the different places that we went in our travels in the desert. And there's a total of 42 of them. Okay. And after we go through all 42 journeys, um, Moshe gives out portions in the land of Israel and describes the borders of the land of Israel. And gives out also, in addition to the borders, every tribe gets their own allotment. But the tribe of Levi, my tribe, remember I told you before, I'm not Jewish. right? I'm not from the tribe of Judah, of Yehuda. I'm from the tribe of Levi. Um, and the tribe of Levi did not get land in Israel. Levi was not given a portion of the land. What did Levi get? Levi got cities. Levi got uh, basically... 42 cities or six six main cities 
a total and plus another 42, which were cities of refuge, where if a person killed someone by accident and the family wanted to take revenge on them, that they could run to the city and be saved. It's called a city of refuge. There were 42 of them in the land of Israel. Again, the number 42. Okay, don't forget that number. Anyone ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Anyone? It's a great book. So it's about uh, this guy that travels the universe in search of the meaning of life. I don't remember all the things. It's funny. It's like a funny book. And he finally arrives at like this mouse that controls the universe or some computer. I don't know the whole thing. And he asks him, what's the meaning of life? And he tells him 42. Number 42. Interesting. Okay. Um, there's actually a 42-letter name of God also. And if you add up all the days from the, the, the fast day, the 17th of Tammuz until Tisha B'Av, you get three weeks, which comes out to 22 days. Sorry, 21 days. And if you add to that all the holidays in the Jewish calendar, there's also 21 holidays in the Jewish calendar. You put them together, you get 42. Okay, so hold that number. We'll come back to it. Um, we talk about if a person murders someone unintentionally, that he runs to be saved in this city of refuge. And that's basically, that's basically it. Okay, so let's go through and see if we can come up with some insights. Okay, so let's start with an interesting statement from Rashi. Rashi begins the second part of this week with a story. Rashi says, why does the Torah list all the journeys of the Jewish people in the desert? Why does he go through every place we went? So answer number one, Rashi says, is to show us that the suffering wasn't that bad. The journeying throughout the desert really wasn't as bad as you thought. Like 42 times sounds like a lot of travels, but when you spread it out over 40 years... And you take into account that a whole bunch of those journeys took place in the first year and the last year. So it comes out that they were really pretty much not moving for a long time. It wasn't like they were moving every day. They were moving a lot in the first year, a lot in the last year. And then those 40 years, they were camping in one place for almost a year each time. So um, that's Rashi's answer number one, is to show us that the suffering in the desert wasn't that bad. The journey wasn't that bad. But what's the purpose of the journey, according to that explanation in Rashi? Why did we journey through the desert? Okay, figure out, figure out what? Why do we have to figure stuff out? Yeah. Great. After the spies, we got punished that we have to stay in the land of, in the desert for another 40 years. So it's a punishment. The time in the desert, the journeys are a punishment. But Rashi tells us, but you should know the punishment wasn't that bad. That's what Rashi tells us. Answer number two Rashi gives is a metaphor. Rashi says it's a metaphor of a king whose son was sick. And the king found out that there's some place far, far away where the, where the prince can get healed. And so the king takes the prince on a journey. 
and they travel across deserts and mountains and forests. And finally, they arrive at the destination and the prince gets healed. And then on the way back home, on the journey back home, the, the king points out all the places they camped along the way when the prince was sick. He didn't remember. And the king says, you see that place? That's where you were sick. You see that place over there? That's where we slept. See over there? That's where, where we were cold. And he points out all the trials and tribulations that took place along the journey. And that's why Rashi says, now as we're about to enter into the land of Israel, the Torah recounts all the places that we went on our journey. So according to answer number two in Rashi, what's the purpose of the journey through the desert? Crickets. Anyone? We weren't ready. Okay, that's, that's a good answer. It is a good answer. But what, how does that fit with the metaphor? What's Rashi trying to tell us in the metaphor of the prince, the king, who's taking his sick son on a journey to get healed? Ah. Wow. Julia is going deep fast. Before we get there, Julia, and we will, the Rashi is telling us simply that the, the purpose of the journey is to something for your benefit. It's not a punishment. On the contrary, it's the opposite explanation. Rashi first said is that the journey in the desert was a punishment. Second answer, Rashi says, and but, but he says, but the punishment wasn't so bad. That was the first answer. It was a punishment, but it wasn't that bad. Second answer is that it was for our benefit, that we should get healed. And yet, along that journey, which was for our benefit, there was suffering along the way. So it's the opposite. It's that there was suffering, but that wasn't the point of it. It was for our, for our healing, for our, for our benefit. So we're going to come back to this metaphor shortly. So maybe right now. Okay. I want you guys to think about that metaphor that Rashi gives. King, listen carefully. King whose son is sick. Put on your Talmudic hats, Mike. Ronnie, Matt, Talmudic cats, everyone else. A king whose son is sick goes on a journey to get healed. And on the way back from the journey, the king points out all the places they went along the way. Think very carefully about this metaphor and tell me what is absolutely unnecessary for the metaphor. And while you're thinking, I'm going to say one more thing. that. What I'd like to explain, and the themes from this week's Parsha, and especially the idea of journeying in the desert, I want to explain that the journey through the desert is explained to be a prototype for all the journeys of the Jewish people throughout history. So why were the Jewish people exiled? Why are we suffering right now? Why are we celebrating these three weeks of mourning? Because we are in exile. We're no longer in the land of Israel officially. There are Jews now in the land of Israel. There's Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, but it's not the ideal state. And the majority of Jews are still no longer are still not there. We're not all there. We're not in our homeland, and we're not following the Torah. So we are in a state of exile. 
Why? Why were we, so to speak, sent out to the four corners of the earth? I believe there are three explanations for why we're sent out into Gullis, into exile. And I think that we can learn them all from the journey in the desert. So reason number one is very simple. What's reason number one that we're sent into exile? Simplest reason. Punishment. Just like the first explanation in Rashi. We were punished. We didn't live up to our spiritual level in the land of Israel. The Torah says clearly, if you do not observe the Torah, you will be kicked out. You will be sent to the four corners of the earth. Literally, like exactly like what happened. You will be despised by the nations, oppressed by the nations. That's a prophecy that has come true. It is one of the greatest proofs for the Torah is that that happened. How often do nations get kicked out of their land? And if you think that's crazy, how often do nations get kicked out of their land and then come back to their land? The answer is in human history, zero. It has never happened before. And yet we've seen that happen in our own time. One of the two of the most incredible wonders of Jewish history. And a third one is that the Torah says we will be oppressed by every nation we go to. And again, something that we have seen throughout history, which is uncanny and unusual. One of the most universal things in human history is hatred of the Jews. Another proof of the Torah, I think. So that's answer number one. Answer number two. Okay, so answer number one is to punish us, that we, we complained about the land of Israel. We were punished to stay in the desert for another 40 years. We didn't live up to our spiritual potential in the land of Israel. We get kicked out of the land of Israel. We didn't appreciate it enough. We didn't live up to its divine purpose. We have to now travel the world and suffer because of our sins. That sounds very Catholic. I don't like saying that. But it's true. We, we understand that when bad things happen to you, this is, a, this is a ABCs of Judaism. When bad things happen to you, the Talmud says, examine your deeds. If you stub your toe, examine your deeds. What did I do to just deserve stubbing my toe? I must have done something wrong. You know, um, a friend of mine lost his voice recently and might need surgery. So I said to him, I was joking, but I said to him, did you speak Lushan Hara? Did you speak badly about somebody? You're not supposed to say that to other people, by the way. When it's other people suffering, you're supposed to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sad. It's, it's so unfair. But when it's you suffering, you have to ask yourself, where can I improve myself? How can I improve my deeds? Okay, so that's answer number one. Answer number two, okay? And I want you to keep in the back of your mind this metaphor about the king because we have to answer it, all right? There's something extra, totally unnecessary in that story and I want you guys to come to it, okay? So keep those gears turning while we're talking. Answer number two for exile. Why did we go into exile? So the Meshech Chachma, a famous, um, a famous uh, rabbi from about 150 years ago. Let me Google him real quick. Um, Mayor Simcha of Devinsk. Rav Mayor Simcha of Devinsk, who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Riga, Latvia, and in Lithuania, says as follows. He says, there is a paradigm to the exiles of the Jewish people. He says, we arrive in our, in our land, and in a land, in a foreign land, and 
we uh, eventually, at first it's very hard, we're not wanted there, but then over time we begin to become successful, very successful. And then they eventually, we eventually, they start to accept us and we been, begin to assimilate into that land. And as soon as it reaches a point that we're almost fully assimilated, the nation turns against us and kicks us out. So says the Meshach Chachma, that is a paradigm of Jewish history. And says he says the following prophetic words in the late 1800s. He said, when the Jews start calling Berlin the New Jerusalem, just know that it's a matter of time before our days in Germany are over. Just know it's a matter of time before they turn against us. And in fact, the, the early reform movement in Germany said Berlin is the new Jerusalem. Germany was the most assimilated country in Europe. We had not experienced such a golden age of freedom and liberty as we did in Germany. The time before that we experienced such liberty was where? Does anyone want to take a guess? Spain. Good one. Is that what you said? In, that's correct. In pre, in pre uh, Inquisition Spain, the Jews had were literally it was called the Golden Age of Spain. Jews were on top of the world. So. And come as soon as we get too comfortable, that's when things get bad. And some people have been predicting for quite a, quite some time that Jews in America are too comfortable. And we have to just anyone that knows Jewish history knows that we should never get too comfortable. And uh, anyone who's reading between the lines of the news or reading the news outright nowadays knows that there's a lot of very scary stuff going on in America. A lot of anti-Semitism both from the right and from the left. So it's a time to be scared when everyone who absolutely hates each other, the, the liberals and the conservatives who won't talk to each other, the one thing they have in common is hatred of Israel and the Jews. So we have to get scared a little bit. Not too scared, but we have to be realistic. I say that a Jew always has to have an up-to-date passport. And speaking of passports, my sister's supposed to come visit from Israel in two weeks. She just had a baby last Thursday. Briss is tomorrow. Mazel tov. Um, and she can't get a passport for the baby. So she might not be able to come. So uh, it's, it's always a good thing to have a passport. I, uh, a few years ago, we thought we lost our passports. It was crazy. And uh, we thought maybe like the cleaning lady stole them. And maybe there's someone impersonating us. <laughs> like, anyway, um, then we found them under the desk, and it was it was a uh, it was amazing because we were going to Canada that summer, and like literally like the few days before our trip, we're like, oh my gosh, where are the passports? All right. So, answer number two is to protect us. Says the Meshachachma, if the Jews don't make Kiddush, Kiddush means to sanctify ourselves, to be a holy nation then the Goyim, the nations, will make Havdalah. Havdalah, Kiddush is the ceremony that starts Shabbos. Havdalah is the ceremony that ends Shabbos. Havdalah means separation, distinction. So if the Jews don't live as a holy nation, the non-Jews will separate us and remind us that we have an obligation to live as a holy nation. 
And if you think about it in the news, the fact that Jews are always held to a higher standard, right? Israel, one of the most ethical, moral armies in the world, and yet they can never do right in the eyes of the nations. And the answer is because it's the Jewish people. We, we, don't have, an ob we, we have an obligation to do better, not to do good. We have to do better. We have to live according to the highest standards of perfection and morality. Okay, so now let's talk about answer number three. Okay, answer number three. And and by the way, um, answer number three. The Orachayim HaKadosh, the famous Moroccan Kabbalist who I quote, quote frequently, says as follows. He says, why do we go into exile? He says, if the Jewish people had been living on the highest spiritual level when we got into the land of Israel, we... We were, we, when we had the base of Mikdash, when we had the temple, the nations of the world came to us to pray to God. People used to come to the temple. In fact, when the temple was inaugurated, King Solomon had a, made a prayer that any non-Jew who comes to the temple, their prayer should be answered immediately. He says, Jews, you don't have to answer. But when a non-Jew comes, you must answer their prayers, King Solomon said to God. Why? Because we want them to know that this is the real deal. We want them to, to recognize one God. That's, a perp that's our purpose as a nation, is to be a light to the nations that the whole world should know Hashem. So when we were in the, at the highest level, so we stood in the land of Israel and all the people of the world came to Israel and all the sparks of holiness. It says the Orchaim explains, according to Kabbalah, that when the world was created, there were certain sparks of godliness, little divine pieces that were spread out throughout the entire universe. And our job is to bring those pieces back. Now, I'll just give you a simple metaphor for what that means because it sounds very abstract. When you eat an apple, so that apple has pieces of divinity in it, whether it's the vitamins or the taste, there's goodness, there's holiness, spirituality in that apple. If you eat, take that apple and you throw it in the garbage, you wasted that opportunity to connect to the spirituality within that food. But if you take that apple and you eat it, and you don't only eat it while appreciating the taste, you make a blessing and you feel gratitude and you recognize that there's a creator who helped to grow that apple. And you, on, a, on the highest level, which we don't really know how to do so much nowadays, but you actually can experience the, the tasting of the spiritual divine sparks within that apple. So now you've freed the spirituality in that apple and you've now can use it as an impetus to connect to god so we have the ability because we have free will to connect the inanimate to spirituality and it's the same thing when you eat an animal we talked about this before uh, uh several months ago when we talked about vegetarianism that when you eat an animal and you make a blessing and you have in mind that the energy in that food should give you energy to serve hashem and to do mitzvahs and to to be a better person and and you make a blessing and you eat it and you do it in a kosher way. So you're literally lifting up not only that cow, but all the grass that the cow ate and all the sunlight and the water and the nutrients that went into that grass. So you are literally in taking that bite of a burger, you're lifting up the entire universe. Unbelievable. It's an unbelievable ob privilege and opportunity, but it's also an unbelievable obligation and responsibility. Because if you eat that cow and then you go play video games, so that cow and all the grass and all the sunlight and all the water and all the nutrients are like, they were waiting from the beginning of time for a Jewish person to eat it and to use it 
for spirituality, to self-improvement, connection to God, and you used it to play video games. You just literally wasted the cow's life and the billions of pieces of energy and nutrients that were in that cow. So beware. All right. Um, that's why vegetarianism. It's a good thing. Um, but on Shabbos, we're supposed to eat meat because on Shabbos, we have more ability to connect to spirituality. Yes, Matt. Yeah. So, so they, so non-Jewish people can also do mitzvahs. They can also do spirituality. True. So non-Jews also have seven mitzvahs. They're also not allowed to eat, cause pain to animals or eat limbs off of animals. And they also have obligations to do good things. They're not necessarily in this world. Their purpose might not be to lift up sparks. That might be just the Jewish purpose, as, as we'll see. Right, but they have uh, they have an obligation also to eat sensitively. Right? But but we are the nation of priests. That's the idea of a priest of a kohen is literally lifting up sparks. That's what a kohen does in the temple. He's taking cows and slaughtering them and putting on the barbecue, on the on the altar, and sending up those sparks to connect the physicality with spirituality. So that's the job of a priest. Um, so. The Orachim says, if we'd been on that high spiritual level, we would have stayed in the land of Israel. The sparks of holiness would have come to us like a magnet. But because we fell from that level, we had to go into exile to go find the sparks of spirituality that are scattered throughout the earth. So we are sent into the world to find Hashem, to find all the experiences of spirituality that exist in every single thing. We'll talk about this more maybe on Tisha B'Av, but... The idea is that in every experience, there's God. God is in every single experience, but we can choose to ignore the spirituality in the experience and see it as an end in itself. All right, that means in the baseball game. That means in food. That means in making money. All pleasures have the ability to be connected to spirituality. And that's the idea of the Torah, is to work in a spiritual way, to utilize the physical world in a spiritual way that's going to connect us to God as opposed to as an end in itself. Yeah. So the That's 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 what the Orachim says. He says, in each stop in the desert, we had a mission to connect to the spirituality that was hidden in that place. And when we fulfilled that mission, then we moved on to the next place. Excellent, Mike. You figured you thought about that on your own.
Very nice. So we find this exact same paradigm again in Jewish history, that we arrive in a place and the Talmud says the only reason the Jewish people went into exile was to make converts, was to find those souls amongst the nations of the world who want to connect to be part of the Jewish people. And you could think of it as follows, that we go to a nation and we oftentimes we take certain things from that nation, right? Uh, Moroccan Jews eat Moroccan food. Tunisian Jews also, I'm assuming. Or Egyptian, whatever, Matt? Tunisian? Uh, Russian Jews? Russian Jews eat Russian food, right? Ashkenazi Jews have special foods from the countries they come in. Sephardim Jews, but not only the food. We take certain personality traits. Hungarian Jews are known to be very emotional and dramatic, right? Uh, German Jews are known to be exactly on time. Right? Every Jew from each place takes something from that place. So you can essentially say that we traveled the world to take out the good qualities in every nation, that we should really become an, an international nation. A nation has all the good qualities from all the nations of the world. And unfortunately, sometimes we take the bad qualities. That's a problem. We shouldn't be learning the bad from the nations, but there's no reason why we can't learn the good from the nations. So we find the paradigm. It says that when the Jews left Egypt, the Talmud says they emptied Egypt, not only of the gold and silver, but of the spirituality. They literally took with them all the good sparks of holiness that were in the land of Egypt. And then Egypt began to decline in power. And the paradigm that we find is that the Jews are in a country for a while, and then eventually we get kicked out. And then that nation very quickly loses its authority as a world power. Think about Spain. Spain was at the top of the world, greatest nation in the world. Eventually, they kick out the Jews, and Spain begins a, a fairly rapid decline in influence in the world. Same thing with Germany. Germany, most powerful nation in the world. And now, okay, they're EU, EU, but uh, they don't nearly have uh, the power that they once influenced in the world. And the Soviet Union, all the Jews leave in mass, 1980s. And now, Soviet Union, it's a wasteland. Not that it wasn't a wasteland before, but. Uh, Right, the same thing we find in the Arab nations, perhaps. Jews leave the Arab nations, maybe. Um, perhaps we find this paradigm in, in other experiences in our history. That when the Jews are there, that country grows and grows in power. Right, and we find that the, the ruling nation of the world always made an effort to conquer the land of Israel, whether it was the the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Turks, the British, the Germans tried to conquer the land of Israel. And uh, somehow, whatever nation is on top of the world, is it recognizes that they need Jews in their land. And some other Jews eventually end up there. Or maybe that's how the nation rises to power. Not clear exactly which comes first, chicken or the egg. And... Uh, if you think about it, and I, I told this to someone recently, if you can imagine what, what, it's, what it would be like, like think about the land of Israel, the, 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 the nation of Israel today is the size of the state of New Jersey, okay? State of New Jersey. Israel has more patents per capita than any other nation in the world besides the United States. 
Israel has literally caused a desert to flower and to blossom. It's abnormal how much in the world, in the realm of of science, technology, uh, art, uh, humanitarian aid comes out, and ingenuity in the realm of humanitarian aid comes out of Israel. It's absolutely uncanny. But can you imagine what Israel could do if all the Jews were there? If every Jew was there? Imagine if tomorrow Mashiach came and all the Jews in the world got on a plane and went to the land of Israel. What would happen to Hollywood? What would happen to science in America? What would happen to art? The, literally, imagine all the creative energy that we have as a nation, what we could do if we were all together in one home base. Absolutely unbelievable. Revolutionary. Right? Einstein. And like, as you guys know, uh, I think I believe 30% 30, 30 of Nobel Prizes were won by Jews. 30%. Right? We are a nation the size of Armenia. Same, right? There's less than one half of 1% of the world's population is Jewish. One half of 1%, yet 30% of Nobel Prizes. Abnormal. That's the Jewish genius, but it's really the Jewish spirituality. Because we're really supposed to be utilizing our genius for spiritual purposes, not just in the realm of science, but to show that science is actually an expression of God. So answer number three is that we go into, into the exile in order to connect to the spirituality that's in those places. The Baal Shem Tov used to say, and it's very interesting, that this time of year is a time when everyone goes on vacation. So one of the great ha contemporary Hasidic teachers says, that the reason we travel during this time of year is two reasons, he says. One is because this is the end of the year, according to the Jew Jewish calendar, right? We're approaching the new year, Rosh Hashanah. So this is called the Regal Hashanah, the foot of the year. So because it's the foot of the year, there's an energy in our feet to travel. And number two, he says, because this is the time of year when the king is in exile, and we have to go out and journey to different destinations to try to connect to the spirituality in those places, in those far out places. The Baal Shem Tov used to say that if you find yourself lost in the woods in an unusual place that you've never been, do a mitzvah, learn Torah, make a blessing, have a drink in that place. Because who knows, maybe there's a spark that's been in that place from the beginning of time waiting for somebody to come to that spot to do a mitzvah in that spot. So wherever you end up is always ideal. You think you got lost? You think you made a wrong turn? You think you missed the bus? No. You're meant to be exactly in that place. Utilize it as an opportunity to connect. So now, my friends, I want to ask you, what does the metaphor, what's extraneous in the metaphor? King, son gets sick, takes him on a journey to get healed. What's extraneous? Um, I mean, you have to pass through places to get to the destination. Too many? Well, it's a long journey. Long journey. You don't have to think that hard. It's absolutely unnecessary. What?
Great. So, so that's, first of all, I think a great point is uh, why travel? Why not? Ah, excellent. Ah, okay. He had to travel. What's extra? What's unnecessary in the story? What is completely not part of the story? Well, he's part. that's the story. He had to get sick. Who's the he? The who? The what? The who, the what? Yeah, the king and the prince went traveling. <clears throat> What's the issue? Do I have to tell you? Oh, oh, the king, the king. No, not because the child is the one that needs to get better. Rashi says two other times in the Torah, Rashi says metaphors. You know what the metaphors Rashi uses two other times in the Torah? Of a father and a son who are traveling. A father and a son. Why does it have to be a king and a prince? It's absolutely unnecessary for the story. If Rashi had said there was a a father whose son got sick and the father took him on a journey to get healed. Would you have any questions on the story? Why does he say it's the king and the prince? So I'll tell you a simple answer, I think. Simple answer is that it's the king. And as Julia said, the king could hire or, or Tony said, the king could hire doctors to come from wherever he wants. They could bring all the healing herbs and all the plants to the king's palace. The king has the money and the resources. He doesn't have to travel. So you see from this that the, the, the healing has to take place in a particular place. So that's part of the story. But why else does it have to be a king? So I believe the answer is, is that it's, it's about the journey. It's about the journey. We have to get to a certain destination. We're traveling to be healed. We're going into exile. We're passing through all these trials and tribulations. There's a time when we're sick. There's a time when we're cold. There's a time when we're sleeping. We're going through lots of different experiences, and some of them are very negative experiences. We have to know one thing, that the destination is healing. We're journeying to enter into the land of Israel. We're going to a destination. Rabbi Nachman said, wherever a Jew goes, he's going to the land of Israel. Wherever you go in your life, just know you're walking to Israel. You might not get there in this lifetime, but we're all on a destination back to the land of Israel, to a place of, of redemption. But you should know one thing, that as you're on this journey, and through all the suffering of this journey, know one thing, the king is with you. The king is literally walking right beside you, carrying you on his shoulders. Just like we read a few weeks ago, the story of footsteps in the sand, right? Where the person sees the footsteps of his life along the seashore. And he says, why is it that there's two footsteps next to me 
throughout most places in my life. That must be my footsteps and God's footsteps who's, who's walking besides me. But how come during the hardest times in my life, I only see one step, set of footsteps? God, where were you? Why did you abandon me during those hard times? And God responds, no, those footsteps that you see, those are mine. I was carrying you during those times. So the Talmud says, wherever we go, Hashem is with us. Whenever we go into exile, wherever we go with the hardships in Auschwitz, God is there, right beside us, holding our hand, carrying us. The entire journey is a journey to find Hashem. Hashem is in the world. That's the spirituality. Those are the sparks of holiness. That's the Shekhinah. That's God who's in the world and all the experiences of the world. We have to utilize those experiences as a means to connect to Him. And that's the 21 days of the three weeks plus the 21 holidays of the year you put those together you get 42 42 days that's the 42 journeys of our life the Baal Shem Tov says every person has 42 journeys in their life i don't know which one i'm at in my life we've journeyed quite a bit but we all go through 42 distinct stages 42 moments each place that we get to each moment each epoch of our life is an opportunity to connect and to grow and to connect one lifetime and one lifetime 42 journeys and those journeys are made up those journeys are made up of 21 hard days and 21 joyous days and those days go together they're interconnected it's all part of a master plan hold on hold on let me finish and then we'll take questions so during these three three weeks we have to notice that there's spirituality and goodness hidden in the darkness in the hard times says the balatanya that everything in this world is good. Everything God does is good. Sometimes the good is revealed and sometimes the good is concealed. Sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't. And he says the times when we don't see it is even better than the times when we do see it. The good that's hidden in the dark times and in the hard times of life is even greater than the revealed good. So what is the connection to all the different themes in the Parsha? Okay, so we mentioned first the idea of oaths. I want you guys to think about this. There's a connection between making an oath to make cake, which is normally permitted, forbidden. There's a connection to that deal of koshering these vessels that we received from the non from the nations that we con conquered, putting the, the vessels in the mikvah. We there's a connection to the three tribes that choose to live outside the land of Israel. What's the connection? How does it tie into the journeys that we go on in our life? Is that the idea of all these ideas is making something that's mundane, holy. Taking land outside of Israel and turning it into the land of Israel. Those, the land outside the Jordan now becomes a part of the land of Israel. These vessels that were not Jewish, not kosher, now become kosher. And when you make a nether, when you make an oath, you're literally taking something that's permitted and you're saying, for me, this thing has the, has the status of holy. I can't touch this thing. So that's our job of going into exile is to literally make the desert into a garden. To bring out the beauty and the holiness that exists in the mundane places of this world, in the places where the spirituality is hidden. And that's the idea of these, these 42 cities of the Levites. The Rambam, I'll conclude with the Rambam. Maimonides says 
that the Levites were not given a portion in the land of Israel because their job is to devote their time exclusively to spirituality, to singing, and God's praises and to teaching Torah. That's the tribe of Levi. And says the Rambam, but not Levi alone, but every single Jew, every human being, says the Rambam, not just Jew, any human being who wants to be part of the tribe of Levi can become part of the tribe of Levi by converting to Judaism or by devoting their time to learning Torah, to spending, and it doesn't have to be your whole life. You can spend a year of studying and devotion to learning Torah. You could spend a day and you can even spend an hour. But in that time that we do set aside for spirituality, those are the things that define us and give us the opportunity to, to reach that level of the tribe of, of Levi. And those cities were cities of refuge where anyone could run who was running away from hardship, was running away from uh, uh, accidental murder. And in the city, they would be, they would receive a punishment. They had to go into exile. They had to run away from home to atone for the murder that they did, even though it was an accidental murder. They also received protection. They were protected from the relatives who were seeking to, to avenge their, their, their lost one. And they also received uh, a tikkun, a healing, by the fact that they spent time with the late Levites who were spending all day singing and learning Torah so that these guys who accidentally murdered someone, which shows that we even there's no such thing as an accident, right? So if a person accidentally murders someone, it's a terrible thing. It means you have something to fix in your life. So they would also receive that positive uh, fixing. So the same three ideas that we see in our, in our journey into Gullis. Again, exile is a punishment. It's a, a protection to keep us Jewish. And ultimately, it's an opportunity to lift up the sparks of spirituality that are hidden in every moment. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Questions now and comments.